All right, 2 Kings chapter 6. God has shown tremendous grace through Elisha to this Syrian band who thought to attack Dothan, as we studied last week. And just as this world does, in return for the grace that God showed, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, besieged Samaria. That means he surrounded it. That was his thanks for the grace that God had shown to his number one soldier, Naaman. And this siege kept the Sumerians from going out of the city or for those who were out of the city from safely returning to it. And the strategy here was to prevent the Israelites in Samaria from gathering food and water and that would slowly starve them out. In the war between the states, the Union soldiers did the same thing when they surrounded Vicksburg, Mississippi and caused the Confederate Army to slowly starve. They couldn't even get to the Mississippi River on which banks it sits. And for six weeks, Vicksburg was surrounded so that none could go out or come in. And this was Ben-Hadad's strategy at Samaria. The only problem was Ben-Hadad hadn't surrounded Vicksburg. He'd surrounded Samaria, the capital of Israel, which was God's chosen people. Now let's look at verse 25. If you've just joined us, we're in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. You learn by looking at this verse that those two items were now on the menu. That's what we learn here. The famine was so bad that an ass's head and dove's dung was moved to the top of the menu for these starving people. And I want you to look at what they're selling for food after you get past the gross part. Look at what they're actually selling, spiritually speaking, biblically speaking. First, an ass's head. Listen to Exodus 13. Verse 13, Exodus thirteen thirteen, where God commanded his people, And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. And all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. And then Deuteronomy 14 and verse 6. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 6, where you see a series of dietary laws God put upon the children of Israel. And it says, And every beast that parteth the hoof and cleaveth the cleft into two claws and cheweth the cud among the beast, 
that shall ye eat. What was the problem with the ass or the donkey? It didn't have both of those. He didn't have the hoof that was cloven. So the ass was an unclean animal. And the children of Israel were told not to eat unclean animals. And what are they doing during this famine? They're eating an unclean animal. They're selling it for a high price, mind you, and eating it. The second gross thing, unclean thing, that's sold on the menu in Samaria during this famine was a fourth part of a cab of, of dove's dung. Now, this is not a taxi cab full of it. It's used differently. A cab is about a liter and a half, about a liter and a half or a quart and a half, maybe a little more. So a fourth part of a liter and a half is three-eighths of a liter of dove's dung being sold for five pieces of silver. Can you imagine that? Dung is unclean. It was to be taken outside the camp. When a sacrifice was offered, the dung was to be removed from it and burned outside the camp. And now it's on the menu of a physically starving, spiritually depraved people. Now, a nation doesn't get to this point overnight. It's from generation after generation of godless, unbelieving people. And it gets even worse in the next few verses. Verse 26. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help my lord, O king. This starving, spiritually depraved woman, and you're going to find out why I said that in a few verses, is asking the government for help. That's the last place I would run for help when famine strikes is to the government. Now, I'm a government employee. But with government help, there are always strings attached. And one thing the government can't ever solve are the problems that they create. Only God can do that. You might say, oh, well, they could bring the price of gas down or they could... Uh, they could lift the restrictions on free trade and we could get more food on the Walmart grocery store and not run out of diet root beer like they're doing right now. But those are short-term things. The big problems that man creates, we can't get ourselves out of. The big problem of sin that man caused in the garden, we haven't ever been able to rescue ourselves from that. And God knew that, and he sent his son to die for those sins. So let's look at the king's answer in verse 27. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? You know, the king rightly answered her when he said, If God doesn't help, how am I going to help you? You think I have extra grain? Or a surplus of grapes? The truth is, if the king and his people had trusted the Lord all along, they wouldn't be dealing with any of these problems. Not one. Because he promised them they wouldn't. 
Now, the king's going to ask her, well, what's your problem? Let's look at verses 28 and 29. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today. I told you it was going to get worse. That we might eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. This woman fell for the old trick, you go first. That's what happened. Do you believe me now when I say this woman was spiritually depraved? Not a parent in here would let something like that cross our mind. I'd starve to death before I'd ever even think about that, and I still wouldn't think about it. But that's what happens with the spiritually depraved people. If you think, well, it's, it's bad, it's bad, it's going to get worse. She allowed her own son to be killed and eaten. Now that goes against the protective instinct that God gives a mother. How selfish is that? Even a lost person who is otherwise in his right mind or in her right mind would give her life for her own child. And now this woman's lost her son. She gave him up. But you notice, she's not upset that her son is dead. She's upset that the other woman won't share her son for supper. That's twisted, isn't it? And it doesn't happen overnight. When you... Look at our country today. You may think, boy, this is as bad as it gets. No, it's not. It was worse in Elisha's day. And it's going to get a whole lot worse in our days and in days after we pass away from this earth. Cannibalism, unbelief, those are just outward signs of spiritual rebellion. That's all they are. The problem here is not to solve cannibalism or to solve poverty or any of these other things. The problem is unbelief. The problem is sin. And it causes all of these other things to come to pass. Another thing you notice here is that there are no husbands in this picture. I'm not saying there were no husbands, but there are no husbands in this picture, in, this, in these verses. I don't know if they were dead, or if they agreed with their wives' evil plans, or maybe the wives had already eaten the husbands and now they were going to eat the children. Or perhaps they were just spiritually weak pajama boys who refused to lead their homes. There are plenty of those, today and back then, by the way. Ahab was a pajama boy. Why is it? important for us to study the book of Titus as we have been on Sunday mornings because the commandments about how the aged men and the aged women and the young women and the young men how they will keep our homes and churches and nation from being overtaken by this evil is important to learn if we learn that there then we don't 
fall where Israel fell here. It starts with the person in the home. It starts with the family and works its way outward. If a, if a person thinks it's okay to eat his children at home, what do you think he'll do if he rules a city or if he's a governor of a state or a congressman? All manner of evil will be okay with him as long as it can be justified. Let's look at verse 30. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall, and the people looked. And behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. If you read this without reading the next verse, you might think to yourself, finally, the king is repenting in sackcloth in the presence of the people. But don't mistake the outward signs of repentance for true inward repentance. That's what the devil's religion is made of. Outward signs, outward signs. In fact, this king wasn't repenting at all. He was livid. And the object of his anger is going to astonish you when you see it. Verse 31. Then he said, that's the king, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. God do so and more also to me. That's a vow. Today we might say, may God strike me dead and worse if I don't cut Elisha's head off today. Rather than repenting of his own sin and Israel's sin, rather than being angry with Syria, the king of Israel is angry with Elisha, the man of God. And by implication, he's angry with God. And that's what happens if, if our pastor or I preach from this word and we read you something and it steps on your toes, and you say, boy, I don't like the way Brother Andy said that. I don't like what Brother Fulton just said. I didn't like that preaching. We're not the ones you have a problem with. You have a problem with God, and it's awfully hard for people to admit that when they get upset with the preaching, assuming the preaching is the truth, which that's what we shoot for here. We don't close the book and walk around and go off on some tangent about what we think is best. If we do then we're held accountable for that. But we preach God's word. And when we preach it, and you're upset with a preacher, if you, if you get upset, or if you get really happy with what was preached, all that is directed to God. You're either happy with what God's word says, or you're upset with what's God, what God's word says. But ultimately, it comes back to how you view God and his word, not the instrument who's up here. The rocks could cry out, as Jesus said. If man wouldn't, the rocks would cry out. And you'd be mad at the rocks or happy with the rocks. How much sense would that make? The very man whom God has used to protect Samaria, to deliver them from their enemies, is the subject of the king's wrath. 
That's a bad king. You know, today, the carnal world blames Christians for all that is wrong. They do. You see it, you read it, maybe you have even had it said to you. The carnal world builds up straw men. That is, they say something false about us, and then they shoot it down. They take unbelievers and tell them that we, the church, hate certain classes of people when actually the opposite is true. We love the people who commit crimes, who are sexual perverts and so forth. We do not like the crime, the sexual perversion, the evil that they do. Now that sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? But the straw man that is built up is this. The unbelievers, Satan's crowd says, the church hates the people who commit these sins. It's not true. We love them just like Jesus loved them and died for those sins. We do not love the sin. We desire to tell them what God's word says about their sin so they may be saved. Now that's not hate, that's love. But the world's message to them on the other hand, it sounds good to their ears. Oh, you just keep doing what you're doing. There's nothing wrong. God understands. It's okay. Nobody's perfect. But that message that sounds good to their ears condemns them. And it keeps them from the gospel message. Satan blinds their eyes lest they should hear that message, see the light, that glorious gospel, and be saved. Now that's hate. That's a hatred for people and not their sin. Which would you rather have? I'd rather hate the sin like God does and love the people like God does. And that's Satan's strategy to destroy the Lord's church too. By taking Christians who are ignorant of the Bible. Now when you're a new Christian, you're going to be probably going to be ignorant of the Bible. That's not always true. There are people who know their Bible very well and who are either unsaved or became Christians later in life. But for the most part, you're going to be generally ignorant of the Bible. Hey, that's okay. Don't stay that way. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we meet again at 11 o'clock and we have Wednesday night Bible study and uh, things posted sometimes on the Facebook page. But ultimately, you have to decide, I'm going to be a student of the Word of God. Let me tell you something that every pastor, every Sunday school teacher should have. Every one of us. In fact, we have this in common with you. We're students. Every one of us. Now, not every student is a teacher, but every teacher is a student. If he's not, he's not a teacher. Because he doesn't know what he teaches. Satan tells these shallow Christians that the church needs to quit preaching all that mean, hard stuff. That everything else is okay. And this is why you need to study your Bibles. If you have found yourself believing like Ben Haydad did, that God's people are the problem and we should probably 
modify the way we preach and we should tone some things down, then the devil has already cleverly lured you into his trap. He's got you. And he, may, he don't have your soul because you're a Christian. But he can render you ineffective when you go, you know what, I think we are too hard on people. The next time I witness to somebody, I'm not going to talk all about their sin. I'm just going to tell them, you know, Jesus loves you. Do you love him? That's only half the story. You know, the devil loves that the king, Jehoram, put on sackcloth in the sight of the people. He loves that Jehoram is so shallow that he's angry with God's man and God's work. The devil loves that. Verse 32 but Elisha sat in his house. But, meaning in spite of the declaration of the verses we read before, Elisha sat still in his house. He followed his own preaching from several verses back, didn't he? Where he said, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And this implies to us that Elisha knew, whether it was by rumor or divine revelation from God that we don't read about, that the king of Israel had called for his head before tomorrow, this day. And the verse further says, and the elders sat with him. I like seeing that. It's instructive to me that the elders did not flee Elisha, afraid their association with him could cause them to lose their heads as well. John 6, verse 68. John 6, verse 68. I believe this is where these elders were spiritually. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And these elders were confident that it was safer to be with Elisha than it was to be against him or to flee off somewhere. You think God can't find you? And he couldn't get out of the city anyway, nor could they. But they sat with him. Continuing in verse 32. And the king sent a man from before him, but ere, that means before, but ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See ye how this son of a murderer has sent to take away mine head? Now because of all the pronouns in here, don't get mixed up. Elisha was sitting in the house with the elders. The king, Jehoram, sent an errand boy to tell Elisha this very thing. But before that errand boy got there, Elisha told the elders, See how this son of a murderer has sent to take away mine head. He was talking about the king. The king was a son of a murderer. And if you may remember, his father's name was Ahaziah, the same one who had conspired to murder Elijah and about whom the Bible says he walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. We've learned that's not a kind thing to say. That means he was an evil king. 
Now, the world would believe, man, Elisha's at a great disadvantage here. Why, he's in Samaria, where the very king of Israel has sent to have him beheaded. He's surrounded by the Syrian army on the outside, and he's stuck in his house with just a few elders. But it was actually Jehoram, the king of Israel, who was at the great disadvantage, and all of his servants, and all of the Syrian army, because they either could not or they would not see that God's hand was upon Elisha. Let's finish out verse 32 here. Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door, and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? These were Elisha's instructions to the elders who sat with him in the house. And because of what had been divinely revealed to Elisha, he not only knew who was coming, but also who would come after him. This phrase, is not the sound of his master's feet behind him, that is, the sentence his master proclaimed. This messenger is sent to say exactly what the king told him to. So if he does, it's as if the king himself were walking behind the messenger saying, yes, that's what I said. Verse 33, And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now those are the words of the king through the messenger. And while he yet talked with him, meaning while Elisha yet talked with the elders, This is the message the king sent. His solution was to kill Elisha, not wait on God. And notice he said, Behold, this evil. Key word here is this. By this evil, this messenger, and therefore the king, did not believe this evil referred to the sin of Israel. Because that's the real evil, is the sin of Israel. He meant that the siege of the city by the Syrian army and the famine was the evil doing of Elisha. That's why he wanted to kill him. Something Elisha did caused God to punish the city like this, and God wasn't doing anything about it in the king's eyes. And he said, what, should I wait for the Lord any longer? So this tells me that the king had come to the conclusion that this evil was brought about by the Lord, Elisha was to blame, and that the king said, I'm not waiting on God anymore, I'm going to take Elisha's head off. So he'd take matters into his own hands by killing Elisha. Now chapter 7 is actually part of chapter 6. No need for a chapter break, so let's look at verse 1. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Tomorrow, about this time, shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, 
and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. What Elisha is promising here is that there would be such an abundance of food that it would be cheap to buy it. One shekel and one shekel. He was going to reverse inflation by tomorrow. The Federal Reserve can't do that. Congress can't do that. Only God can do something that miraculous. I want you to notice, though, in contrast with the type of food that was being sold before, the type of food that will be sold tomorrow. Fine flour and barley. These were not even mentioned in chapter 6, verse 25. Only the unclean ass's head and the dove's dung. Fine flour was not only suitable to eat, but if you read your Old Testament, and you all have studied this part with us, it's been a while, you'll find that it was to be offered with certain offerings, that fine flour. One example is found in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. Also mentioned here is barley. Barley is mentioned in Leviticus 27 verse 16. It's mentioned elsewhere too, but Leviticus 27, verse 16, where it says, And if a man shall sanctify unto the Lord some part of a field of his possession, then thy estimation shall be according to the seed thereof. An omer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. So an omer of barley was valued at 50 shekels of silver during that time. In Leviticus. Now, what do these two grains represent? This is where it gets really, really good. To get fine flour, a grain of wheat has to be beaten. Not broken up a little bit, but beaten. That's coarse flour. But beaten until it is no longer coarse, but fine. And it reminds us that in his humanity... The Lord Jesus Christ was beaten. He was beaten that he would fulfill the prophecy that he must suffer. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, well before he went to the cross, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's him, must suffer many things. And be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. How did he suffer? Oh, he suffered many ways. He suffered many ways. But specific to what we learn about fine flour, let's draw from Matthew 26 verses 66 through 68. Matthew 26 verses 66 through 68. 68. 
And this is during one of the show trials against the Lord Jesus. And so these priests said, What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? So like that grain of wheat was beaten coarse and then continued to be beaten into fine flour. So Jesus suffered by being smitten or beaten for us. Did you notice that Elisha promised that tomorrow fine flour would be on sale? Not the grain of wheat that had to be beaten. Not the coarse flour that had been broken up from the grain of wheat but fine flour. Now what about the barley in our text? What does it represent? This is so good. I'm going to read to you from Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Numbers 5, 11 through 15. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner, and the spirit of jealousy come upon him, that's the husband, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled, or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, And he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled. In other words, if it didn't happen. Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. The jealousy offering was to be brought by the man for his wife whom he suspected had cheated on him, whether she did or not. In the Bible, we are taught that the Lord Jesus Christ is the husband and his church is the wife. And here are the verses for that. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. This refers to the jealousy part. For I am jealous, this is Paul writing to the church, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So in the preaching of the gospel... These people had been espoused to the Lord Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking. And then Revelation 19, verse 7. Revelation 19, verse 7. And in this verse, Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb. It's got a capital L. Where it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And then one more verse, Ephesians 5, 23. Ephesians 5, 23. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So knowing what these other verses said and what we see in our text, we rightly conclude that the church is the wife who belongs to a husband who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because we belong to one husband and because Israel belonged to one husband, we're not free to have another husband. And further, the Lord is jealous over his church. He will not give her to another. Now that's eternal security right there, isn't it? So in mentioning the fine flour and the barley, Elisha is pointing us to a big truth. Like fine flour, Jesus was smitten for his wife, the church. And like barley in the jealousy offering, he is jealous over his wife. Now it says that these, that the fine flour and the barley would be sold for a shekel. When an ass's head had been sold for 80 pieces of silver. And doves dung for five pieces of silver during the famine. What a turnaround. That's a turnaround. Now let's look in verse 2. Then, that is after hearing what Elisha said, Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. This was a man very close to the king of Israel. He leaned, the king leaned on his hand. And maybe he was trying to be cute or sarcastic by saying what he said. But here's what he was basically saying. That even if the windows of heaven were open, Elisha's prophecy might not come true. And to speak this way is to question, number one, God's power. That is, can God really do this? Jeremiah 32, verse 27, God answered that question. Jeremiah 32, verse 27, God said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And what's the answer to that? No. To say what this servant did is also a question of God's provision. That is, does God have enough wheat and barley in heaven to supply Samaria with so much that it can be sold for a shekel? It's to doubt that the opening of the windows of heaven could fill Samaria with fine flour and barley. I want to read to you about the windows of heaven. And it might not be from where you expect. Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. Genesis 7, verses 11 through 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. 
Then when you move down to verses 19 and 20, in that same chapter, it says, And the waters, now these are the ones from the fountains of the deep being broken up and the windows of heaven being opened, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. So whatever the highest mountain was in those days before the flood, if you went to the very top of it and you were 14 feet and 11 inches tall, you would drown. 15 feet above even the highest mountain. So if God can open the windows of heaven and cover the earth with water, then he can overstock Samaria with fine flour and barley so it can be sold for one shekel. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Malachi 3, verse 10. He said, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, listen, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. What did God say about the amount of blessing you would receive? He said, There's not enough room for it. You know, today people doubt the capacity of the windows of heaven. The same people who will blow hundreds or even thousands of dollars a year on lottery tickets or going to the casino refuse to obey God's command to tithe. They trust the windows of a slot machine more than they trust the windows of heaven. And what's more, the kind of blessing they're looking for is typical of carnal people. They're looking for money. I mean, that's what it all comes down to. That's what most of these televangelistic so-called ministries are about. You send me money, and boy, you're going to get a bunch in return. And people say, oh, that's what I want. Their eyes are on carnal blessings. Not only did this king's servant question God's power, saying, don't know if he can do it, or his provision... If the windows of heaven were open, would there be enough to fill Samaria? But he also questioned God's plan. Is God really going to bring food to a starving nation who has disobeyed him? He doubted that God would perform his word. He doubted the truth that Elisha was telling him about what God was going to do. If Samaria and her leaders just took God at his word, they would not doubt his power or his provision, or his plan. And the same goes for us today. It doesn't matter who you are or what your situation is. Trusting God is the solution to your problems. Every one of them. Not just saying, well, I'm just going to trust God. No, trust him according to his word. What does his word say about your problem? See, that will change the way you think about it. If you say, well, I'm just going to keep doing whatever I'm doing that's got me in trouble and I'll just trust God to get me out of it. If you'll go to his word, he has an answer for why you're in the trouble you're in. You have disobeyed something or some things in his word. And the way you trust him to get out of your problem is you say, okay, Lord, I've been following me, doing what I thought was best or other people thought was best. And not what you thought was best. I've done the same thing Adam did in the garden. He did what his wife said instead of what God said. 
And so what I'm going to do, Lord, by your grace, is I'm going to take what your word says. And the flesh doesn't like it. The flesh goes, Whoa. I'm going to take what your word says and obey it. And that's how I'm going to trust you to get me through this problem or to get me out of it. Doesn't mean you'll avoid consequences, does it? But that's how you trust God. And that's what Israel was not doing. Elisha had run into people like this in his ministry, like this king's servant, these shallow leaders and shallow Israelites, unbelievers. He knew how to respond. And he responded as we close by saying, Thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And we'll pick up there next week, Lord willing, as we have run out of time. Any questions? And if you have one after the lesson, you're always welcome to ask it. All right, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're very thankful for all who have come, and especially our visitors, and for those who've tuned in online who have perhaps not tuned in before. And Father, we know that your word has the answer to all of our problems. And it often, more often than not, it rubs the flesh the wrong way. But when we yield to it, we realize it's the best thing for us. So I pray that as we consider what was taught today, that, Father, we would agree with you that the solution you have for our problem is the one we need to trust. In Jesus' name, amen.